everybody. Welcome to the library. We're going to get started. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair, and I'm moderating the panel today, trying to keep these people in line if I can. <laughs> this event is part of our series about the musical Hamilton, which uh, is our one book, one book, one text this year. Um, and one of the themes with that is looking at history and how we understand history, and importantly, how art and pop culture communicates history to us. So today, we're going to talk about how do you do that well? What's good? What's bad? Um, how can we think about that as um, students of art and also students of history? So I'll do a quick intro, then I'll intro the, fa the, the faculty on this panel. Thank you guys for doing this, and then we'll dive in. Um, I do have, uh, Tish Hayes is here with, with a microphone for questions. So if you have questions, you can ask, and we'll, we'll see what happens. So uh, to get us started, the musical Hamilton is a work of art that has popularized not just Alexander Hamilton himself, but also a range of issues related to our country's founders. Tours of Hamilton's grave and other historic sites related to our revolution have been bustling, especially in New York City, following the Broadway success of the musical. Despite, uh, despite the way that Hamilton has promoted history, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote it, um, his musical purposely and openly plays with the historic record by casting it exclusively with actors of color and, act and emphasizing some aspects of Hamilton's life while downplaying others. The musical attempts to be historically accurate at some level, but at another level, it freely abandons the record as it attempts to be a commentary on society today. So it lets go of the truth at some, at some point. So it's not a stretch to say that most of us learn about history through art. Specifically, I would say that we do it through films, novels, plays. Sometimes we may even take a history class or read a book written by historians sometimes, but most of the time we find it in other ways. So. Um, there are great examples such as Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List and Spike Lee's Malcolm X that have marked history and redefined history and made us rethink about history that I would hold up as great examples. And there's others such as Oliver Stone's JFK that has led to a generation of conspiracy theories, um, Disney's Pocahontas that had the amazing ability of screwing up the historic record and insulting Native American culture all at once. Um, and a film like Gladiator that just made up people, mashed people together, and made this alternative Roman history that I don't even know what it was. So there's good examples, bad examples, ugly examples, and we're going to try to answer some of these questions. What does the artist owe to history? Does the artist owe, owe anything to history? What does it mean to be true to the historical record? How do artists get it right, and how do they get it wrong? So to answer this question, we've brought together great minds from our faculty. I will do quick introductions. At the end, we have Tom Dow, who's the department chair for communications, literature, foreign languages. We have Craig, yes, hello, Tom. We have Craig Rosen somewhere. Hello, Craig, who is uh, from theater, director of our theater program. Gotta pack the house. We have Josh Fulton, esteemed historian, Erica Deiters. Literature Communications, Cheryl Bundy, also from Lit, and Miri Fafleis from History and Political Science. So to start us off, I will quit talking and open up the first question. Give us some examples, panel members, of works of art that get it right, like maybe one that gets it right and one that gets it wrong briefly. Whoever wants to jump in, jump in, whatever. Should we go orally about it? Sure. Okay. Start us off, Fulton. All right, I'll, I'll, oh, I'll start us off. Perfect. Uh, microphone closer. Okay. All right. <laughs> in terms of examples of art that, that gets it incredibly wrong, uh, the first thing that comes to mind would be Gone with the Wind. Uh, 
one of the most formative experiences in American history over the last 200 years, of course, has to be the Civil War, the issues connected to race in this country, uh, and the debates over the institution of slavery. For those unfamiliar, Gone with the Wind is, an ex is a film that was issued in the 1930s, prominently telling the story of a southern white plantation family and how they sort of came to grips uh, with the American Civil War. This, of course, uh, fails uh, many levels of <laughs> historical accuracy uh, in attempting to characterize the experiences of those living in the what became the Confederacy and then former Confederacy through the lives of these singularly elite people. Uh, it is a film that is today viewed as profoundly racist in many ways. Uh, a good example of something that gets it right, uh, I would pose or, or, or point us to uh, HBO's miniseries, The Pacific. It uh, came out in the last 10 years, uh, brought together a series of different memoirs on uh, the Pacific campaign in World War II, and reflected the scholarship of the last 30 to 40 years to view the combat in the Pacific for what it was, uh, a racialized conflict uh, on both sides. So, be good ones to start with. I will try to be brief. Can you hear me okay? Nope. Okay. She's telling now. Can you hear me now? Or am I not on? Now you're on. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, uh, good. I can hear me now. All right. So, I'm going to try to work with my notes so I don't go off on tangents here. Uh, I think <laughs> as most of the people on this panel are friends of mine and know me well. Um, so this task, I think, is really difficult. Like, what does it even mean for a work to represent history well um, or to fail at that? I think that terminology implies a kind of purpose behind the text, whether in film or print, to capture some historical moment in a particular way, in this case, well. So let me present an example of a text and how it works with history at least from my perspective as a lit person and as someone who works with film adaptation. Uh, Hidden Figures, uh, and I don't know if you've seen it yet, I kind of hope you've seen it. It's a fantastic film uh, that you should definitely check out. Uh, it's telling several stories. One of the stories is about the space race and the effort to get humans into space and into orbit. It's not about the astronauts as much as it is the mathematicians, uh, called computers actually, uh, who work to calculate the trajectories by hand, uh, even as we see IBM machines installed in NASA uh, during the film. Another story that we get is uh, the primary one, and it's really about uh, the three African-American women who are pioneers in different ways by becoming the first black manager at NASA and later a Fortran expert, which was kind of a big deal uh, at that time because the IBM machines were really just showing up, uh, the first African-American engineer, uh, and one of the most valued computers for several missions uh, is another woman named Katherine Johnson. Uh, she calculated, or at least contributed to, calculating John Glenn's orbit around the Earth. In fact, uh, he wouldn't get into the rocket until he heard that she had actually validated the math. And the backdrop to all of this is uh, the story of segregation. So there are all these kind of layers to the narrative. It's a fantastic film, and one of the most compelling uh, visual methods it employs involves bathroom politics, which is kind of a timely topic in itself. 
uh, Catherine Johnson, the woman who ends up rechecking the IBM machines of the So Catherine Johnson, the woman who ends up rechecking the IBM machine's trajectory projections, works in a room full of white men and one white woman. And throughout the story, her half-mile walk to the bathroom, the colored bathroom, uh, is presented as almost a refrain. Uh, we see it multiple times throughout the film. Um, at first, it's played to slightly comedic effect. Okay, she's in her heels, there's a dress code for how she has to, what she has to wear. Um, while the men can ride bikes, she can't, because <laughs> she has to wear a skirt. Uh, and she runs a half mile just to get to the bathroom. Um, eventually the refrain becomes incredibly heart-wrenching and it leads to the story's climax, where she finally has it out with her boss, who is played by Kevin Costner, um, and this man's name is Al Harrison. So what follows is after she lays out her frustrations, he takes a crowbar to the colored bathroom sign and knocks it down. And so it's this really compelling moment in the story. Of course, that actually didn't happen, okay? Um, there are a lot of deviations from the historical record, I guess. Um, Al Harrison, her boss, never actually existed. He's a composite of several different managers, um, and that's a common technique used uh, in adapting nonfiction stories. Um, there are other white characters who never really existed and their stories are there to show, in one case, uh, a coworker who doesn't accept Catherine. By the end of the movie, he accepts her. There's a female white manager who similarly doesn't accept one of the women. By the end of the film, she does. So there's like a story they're trying to tell about change and hope. They have these redemption arcs, in other words. Um, the three women in the film are shown to be close friends, but in reality, they work together, but they weren't really close friends. Um, and even though they were separate bathrooms, that was a reality uh, for Catherine in particular. Uh, that actually wasn't an issue for her. She just used the closest bathroom, and it didn't have a sign on it that said colored or white, and nobody cared. Um, so there are a lot of elements of the real story that aren't captured. And so this issue of representing history well is complicated, and I think on some level this issue of like how like the fidelity of it is not useful because a film, as with literature, is ultimately working to tell a story. Um, and in Hidden Figures, that focuses on exposing the way African American contributions were marginalized or completely hidden, and they were hidden in the actual historical record. You know, if you studied about John Glenn in your textbook as a kid you wouldn't have known that there were any African-American mathematicians around. Like that wasn't a part of the historical record as we knew it. So when we try to assess like what is, how well does the film capture history, what record of history are we actually using? So anyway. So let's see, this one's on, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm gonna come at this from a different viewpoint and that's a, um, a theatrical viewpoint. So when we deal with theater, we're looking at various things. We're looking at a playwright's interpretation of history, and then we're looking at a director's interpretation of the playwrights. Then we're looking at 
traditionally our focus is on the actor's interpretation of the character as seen through the director's vision and the, pl and the uh, playwright's vision, and that doesn't include all the technical elements like the scenery, the lights, the sound, the costumes, and everything. So the various layers in this question for a play, kind of they keep mounting uh, up. But I think the focus was supposed to be mainly on uh, on text. So what I uh, what I selected were two different adaptations of the Diary of Anne Frank, because that adds even another layer to it, which is we have a primary source, we have her diary. So now when we instead of sort of assuming things, we can see what goes into each adaptation and really refer back to its primary uh, to its primary source. Can you so give us a Reader's Digest explanation? What is the Diary of Anne Frank? Just in case. Tommy, Real fast. Do that. What? Does, it, does anyone not know Diary of Anne Frank? How about that? Okay. It's a diary, it's a diary of a young girl <laughs> whose family was, um, was um, holed up or hiding in an attic in, uh, in Amsterdam during, the, uh, during World War II, and they were a Jewish family, and they were kept in hiding for, uh, I believe it was about two years. And um, just before the end of the war, they were caught. There were some really good, nice people who were helping them out for various reasons. Um, and they were caught. They were sent to concentration camps. Um, and the father, especially Otto Frank, is the uh, person who kind of kept the legacy alive. He survived. Anne and her sister did, uh, did not, nor did most of the other, I'm not sure any of the other people in the uh, attic did. So, um, That's so a good explanation. Yeah. So, so we have this vision now, this history kept alive by this young girl's father to begin with. And I know if my father was keeping my history alive, there are certain things he probably wouldn't talk about um, in, you know, for the world to hear. So there's a certain sort of lens we're looking at. So there are kind of two major adaptations we look at of the uh, diary, and one was in 1955. Um, that was approved by Otto Frank. He kind of gave the thumbs up. The playwrights were, ha were uh, Hackett and Goodrich, for what it's worth. Um, and they really sanitized the uh, story. It almost became sort of melodrama. Um, they were told that uh, an original draft by somebody else was too Jewish. So they deleted a lot of the Jewishness of it so that it would become more quote unquote universal. Um, in Anne's diary, there's a lot of references to burgeoning sexuality. She's a young, she's a young teen. And uh, they sort of cleansed that in the, uh, in the original text. And there are lots of other things. She had, uh, Anne had a lot of uh, friction with her mother especially and her older sister. And uh, her father really didn't want these things to, uh, to be emphasized. In fact, he held out, he hid portions of that diary for many years. So there were selected things that were kept out to begin with. So that play was really well, uh, well regarded at the time, meaning it sold a lot. A lot of people came to it. Um, but then over the years, as more and more of her di diary was, was uh, released, as more and more people did uh, research into uh, her work, another adaptation in 1997 by a Wendy Kesselman was written. And that became the, uh, I want to say, the newish standard, which again, isn't perfect. There are things that are either distorted or changed, sometimes for obvious reasons and sometimes for reasons not quite sure. But Otto Frank had uh, passed away. There was more known. And this one, she emphasized a little bit more of the Jewishness of it, quote unquote, scenes that uh, became important. Her aunt's friction with her mother and uh, her sister, the sexuality and the questions she has about 
grow, about growing up and maturing. So that became something that they focused on a little bit more to sort of raise the tension and get a little bit more authentic to what we knew about Anne and her, and her uh, diary after that. Um, the first one was uh, sort of like a feel-good adaptation, even though, she, uh, even though she was captured. The second one was a little edgier, and just a quick anecdote is that we performed the show here about three, four years ago, and at the beginning of it, we had a gunshot for various reasons, and someone said to me, how can you have a gun, like how can you make Anne Frank a depressing story? And I'm like, well, she gets caught by the, uh, she, you know, she gets caught and she gets killed and she, you know, all these things. She's like, yeah, but we're supposed to feel good about Anne Frank, about this beauty of this, the beauty of the language or that she could do that and the reaffirmation of life. And I said, yeah, of course, there's all of that is in the text, but it doesn't end up with a happy ending, guys. So this context for what we're seeing versus what's there has sort of in some ways been kind of bastardized over the years. So I wanted to select those two adaptations yeah, in various layers. So okay. that's you. All right. All right, listening to these guys, my, my head's like swimming and I'm taking notes and I've got my stuff over here. Um, just there, there is a lot to say about this. Uh, I'm gonna start with uh, a text that I think represents history fairly well. Uh, it's a poem, actually, and it's, it's called Shirt, and it's by a former poet laureate, Robert Pinsky. And my students, I teach this in my Lit 217 class, Introduction to Poetry, and some of my students have said, yeah, this poem's in my history textbook. Uh, and I, I don't know if that gives it credibility or not, but um, <laughs> in reading it, uh, it's, about, it's about a fire in New York um, from a, a shirt factory in 1911. And <coughs> you've got all sorts of um, immigrant workers, Koreans and Malaysians, and they're caught on the ninth floor. The fire's on the ninth, 10th, and 11th floor. And it's like 146 people die in the fire. And it goes through um, in the first several stanzas describing the incident, and, uh, I, and it's accurate from what I know. Done a little tiny bit of research. Um, the facts are there, the year, the number of deaths. Um, but I think what this poem does really well goes back to craft and some decisions that the poet makes in order to communicate feeling. Uh, again, to capture a little bit of what those who were caught in the fire may have felt. Um, in addition, he, Pinsky, kind of pays homage to history. He runs through, he, he has all sorts of other historical allusions. Uh, he refers to uh, another poet, Hart Crane, and his poem about someone who jumps off of the Brooklyn Bridge, which is another historical incident. Um, he, Pinsky, refers to the hoax of Osian, which is another historical incident uh, about a poet who is a translator and he pretends to be somebody else who translates his own poems and it's this big poetry scandal, right? And then, right, can there be scandals in poetry? <laughs> and, then, uh, and then there's this reference to George Herbert, who could be another poet. Um, again, he's a real person. Um, and is that who Pinsky's referring to, or is he referring to George Herbert Bush, former vice president, president, and his secretaries of labor? Because there's all sorts of commentary within this poem about sweatshops and, and the mistreatment of these factory workers. 
so again, just as really interesting um, references to different moments in history. Even slavery comes up. Comparison between the sweatshop workers to the cotton pickers. Um, two lines in this longer poem, um, really quick. Um, I think also because of the way it's written, and I, I really I wanted to make photocopies and pass them out, but <laughs> these, these very um, structured poem, it's free verse, uh, no rhyming or anything, but all the stanzas are very consistent. Uh, three line stanzas throughout, so it gives it a sense of formality, which I think also gives it some weight and it's acknowledging of history. Um, and, and so it's really, I think it's done really well. But again, going back to um, the art and the craft and trying to create feeling beyond fact. Um, Pinsky, he writes, for example, the witness in a building across the street watched how a young man helped a girl to step up to the windowsill and then held her out away from the masonry wall and let her drop. And then another, as if he were helping them to enter a streetcar and not eternity. Um, he stepped to the sill himself and his jacket flared and fluttered from his shirt as he came down. So again, really, witnesses saw these folks jumping from the ninth floor to because they were going to burn otherwise. Um, but the the beauty, ooh, is that weird? The beauty of the simile, as if he were helping them enter a streetcar. That's just beautiful. You know, I'm going to help you kill yourself essentially. But it's this everyday gentlemanly activity that he's creating. And did that really happen? Maybe, right? But I think that's Pinsky giving this very human, touching moment. Um, description to that moment that was otherwise gruesome and horrifying. So that's my, that's my good text. Um, I, I'm going to let you go on. I, I have a feeling my bad text is going to come up later on. <laughs> <laughs> good morning, everybody. Um, so there's, there's a quote from a film uh, from 1962 called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and it says, this is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And so oftentimes I think legend does become truth. And I think that part of that is because I don't think people are particularly interested in getting full truth from their films or from their poems or from their TV shows. It might spark an interest to seek out further truth, but I think they're going to be entertained. So I, however though, I will say that I think filmmakers, particularly in the modern age, are doing their level best mainly because they can be called on it rather easily to portray the truth as much as possible. When you look at films, from the last roughly 30, 40 years or so, uh, I think that filmmakers really do attempt to, to stick to the truth. Um, one of the films I would portray as a good one would be Apollo 13 uh, from 1995. That was by Ron Howard, Opie from back in the day, most of you don't know that, but um, directed this film about the uh, 1971, if you want to call it a failed moon landing or a successful return after an, ex an explosion on board the spacecraft, which left uh, these astronauts in limbo for days. Um, is, is a really accurate portrayal. They, because we have transcripts from NASA as to what was going on every moment, they really tried to stick close to the NASA record, but without getting too, shall we say, nerdy and being too straight. I mean, Tom Hanks wanted to stick to the script, I mean, as it came out, but they wanted to deviate a little bit. So to give you an example of a, of a, of a misrepresentation in the film, the most famous line from that movie, anybody know what it is? Houston, we have a problem. Everyone knows that. Now, brace yourself, because the real record was, Houston, we've had a problem. What? I know, I know, it's shocking. I've never watched it. No. 
So they, until the end. Because it's not as dramatic. If you say Houston, we've had a problem, it's like, eh, okay, we've had a problem, it's over. But now Houston, we have a problem, and it's there's smoke coming out of this coming out of the spacecraft, and it's a, a gas coming out. Of the space. It's very dramatic. So that's an example where the history was so compelling that you didn't have to change much to make it good. Now, another movie that I think kind of fits into the bad category, that's when the legend becomes fact, print the legend, is uh, one of the few movies when I do my history versus Hollywood project in American History 2, and my students are here. We cover 1865 to the present. Um, this is one of the few movies that gets a D in terms of historical accuracy, and that is The Untouchables uh, from 1987. <laughs> and that's with Kevin Costner and Robert De Niro. It's about Al Capone, Chicago, Elliot Ness and the fight to put Al Capone away for his horrible crimes during the Prohibition era. This movie is just rife with error. Um, but I love it, right? The acting is fantastic, the music is great, um, it's, it's a compelling story, but there are these glaring, glaring, like just basic, complete untruths. Um, one of them is that there's a scene in which Al Capone is sitting around in this beautiful hotel, and it was, I believe it was shot on location, and it's all you know, crystal, and all the men are wearing tuxedos, and he takes out a baseball bat, and he beats a man to death who basically disobeyed him in front of the entire crowd. Well, that never happened, but it's compelling to watch, right? There's another great climactic scene where Elliot Ness uh, confronts Al Capone, I believe it's in the, the hotel, the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel in the city, and there's this, you know, he's like, I'm gonna put you away, and very dramatically, and Al Capone's yelling back at him, that never happened either. Um, another big scene in this is when uh, Frank Nitti, the enforcer, who was one of Al Capone's main guys, is thrown off the roof of, I believe it's the courthouse where Al Capone's being, being tried uh, by Elliot Ness. That never happened either. Uh, the Canada scene, if those of you who know the movie, uh, there's a scene where they try to capture some, um, some liquor being smuggled through Canada and that whole scene, that, none of that happens. So ultimately, does it matter? <laughs> Um, I mean, it's got, again, it's got Sean Connery, who's got one of my all-time favorite lines ever. He plays this Irish sergeant named Malone who maintains his Scottish accent throughout the entire time. It drives me crazy because the guy's supposed to be Irish, but it says he's got this, this Scottish accent. And he tells Elliot Ness that how, do you, how you fight Capone is, he pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And it's this classic line, right, in this Sean Connery Scottish accent that's not Irish, that's annoying, but it's a great line. So it's compelling. And the movie got all these awards and, and all this, these, I believe, Oscars. And, but ultimately, does it matter that it gets history so, it captures it so poorly? I'd argue it doesn't. I mean, I don't think a filmmaker's responsibility is to, they're not historians. Their job is to entertain you. Um, it's our job as historians or or. Uh, poets or to get the word out of what is what is truth um, at the same time though I think that filmmakers feel a sense of responsibility that you don't want to get it wrong um, you don't want to be kind of made fun of although it's easier to do it if you've got movies that are about subjects that took place a couple thousand years ago like your gladiator or Spartacus or whatever because there you know there isn't there's nobody around to tell you you got it wrong so um, that's my take for now. I got plenty more where that came oh, from, yeah. trust me, but I'll, I'll stop and leave it to my colleague, Tom Dow. No, no one around but you pesky historians. So. <laughs> Go ahead, Dow, what you got? I have no voices uh, to do this in. Can you do it in a Scottish brogue for me, man? Um, so I was hoping there was going to be a segue in there somewhere, uh, and there was, because she just mentioned things that were super old, and that's what I'm going to talk about is things that are super old, like me. Uh, 
Uh, so I have one. Uh, I actually brought two good texts where I feel that the the artists got it right in terms of their incredibly entertaining texts. Uh, one is Thackeray's Vanity Fair, which is from 1845, 1847, um, where the center, the linchpin of the novel is the Battle of Waterloo, which a lot of us know from history class that was kind of the, the decisive moment for Napoleon. Um, and uh, another one is from 1415, uh, which is uh, Henry V's battle at Agincourt, which is really the, the linchpin, again, of Shakespeare's Henry V. Um, interestingly enough, Thackeray was asked this question about history and a novel, and what is the artist's responsibility to it. Uh, and in 1840, what he said is, sorry, I gotta take off my bifocals <laughs> to read this. Um, I've often thought that in respect of sham, which is what he called histories that were more literary and more entertaining mm -hmm. than what he called real histories, a similar fact may be noticed, the sham story appearing a great deal more agreeable, <laughs> lifelike, and natural than the true one. Uh, and all who, from laziness as well as principle, are inclined to follow the easy and comfortable study of novels may console themselves with the notion that they are studying matters quite as important as history. <laughs> um, because what he really believed was that uh, novels gave artists the opportunity to really discuss the real complex intersection of the intimate private lives of people who are living in what we later call history, <laughs> but for them it's today, it's their life. Um, and these large historic public moments. Um, so some people argue that, uh, that Waterloo is kind of the, in a literary way it provides a centering or an anchor for the novel around which everything else happens. Um, some people argue that it's really used more as a metaphor uh, because the entire novel is about social battles. Um, and it's literally on the way to the battle, um, the characters in the novel attend the Duchess of Richmond's ball, which is held the night before Waterloo <laughs> um, nearby. Um, and it was this big social outing. Um, and some of the characters, their fortunes took a crash as a result of the, the man of the household being killed at Waterloo. Others, it was an opportunity for social advancement because they were in the right place at the right time wearing the right dress. Um, so for them, it was a good thing. Um, and we see all of the plots kind of intersect. And this novel is this big. So it's all of the plots intersect at Waterloo, um, which is really a, a cool way to do it in terms of Thackeray. But again, he didn't believe that he had to have this recounting of all of the data of the battle. So he wasn't interested in sharing how many people were killed on what day, at exactly what location, what regiment was it. Um, he was talking about the soldiers when they got their orders to go. He was talking about their farewells to their families. He was talking about their families who were waiting to hear. Um, and that was more important to him, um, although Waterloo is very present in the novel. Um, and again, in a way that is not historically inaccurate, um, the dates are correct, the locations are correct, um, but he really gets into the private personal lives of the soldiers and their families as a way of telling that. Um, jumping back 200 more years, um, so now it's harder to dispute, right? Because <laughs> I'm back in 1415. Um, but uh, 
a lot of people, when I teach Henry V, and I'm going to read a couple of lines from it, where at the end of the battle, um, King Henry says, this note doth tell me of 10,000 French. <laughs> and then he says, of these 10,000, they have lost. Right? So he's talking about the fact that in this single battle on this single day, the English army, which totaled about 6,000 when they showed up, had taken down 10,000 French. I think that's alternative facts. Yeah, I right. think, I th well, I, again, I've been doing a lot of research into the history of that, and a lot of people say, yeah, it's, it's, it's exaggerated, <laughs> but not as much as we probably think it is because of some of the technology, some sure. of the terrain, uh, the longbows versus uh, the French were getting on their horses with uh, spikes that were shortened because they needed them to be shortened to get on the horse, but the English weren't shortened. Well, like Mary said, bring a gun to a knife fight, right? So if, you're, if your spear is longer than my spear, right, well, then mine's going to hit you before you get to me every single time. And the momentum of this giant army moving forward, they couldn't stop. And so a lot of them died. They were crushed. So it wasn't quite the God's hand in this as much as Henry liked to say it was. Um, but then he says, and, and this is part where my students go, seriously, is this real? How many English were dead? Uh, he says, oh, well, there's four people I can name, and then five and 20 more. So 29 versus 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We live in an era where, where facts are, are dramatic. Um, but again, the point of Henry V was not to give data. Right. The point of Henry V was to be entertaining and to be incredibly patriotic. Mm -hmm. Even those of, of, of us who are not Anglophiles, um, and I am, so I'm, I'm you know, reading this play and I'm all excited that, I'm, that I, I kind of connect with my English heritage in that moment. Um, but it was meant to rouse people to this excitement of patriotism. And again, historians say it's close, that it's not as off as we like to think it is because it sounds like a miracle. <coughs> And of course, Henry says, thank you, God, because this is a miracle. We have won because God wanted us to win, right? And then we can all take that for, for what it is. So I want to push back on a couple things from uh, Mary. One, I know, well, don't worry, well I'm going to throw this out to everybody in a second. Mary's comment that in the last 30 years, his, uh, filmmakers have done pretty well. I can name a bunch of movies where that have been train wrecks, like Argo uh, and uh, Pearl Harbor. If you want to study history, yeah, do not yeah. get Pearl Harbor. But that's the lesser point. Me to the question, what does it matter? Like, does it, yeah. does it matter? And I had a, a mentor of mine who was a history instructor, and he, he taught um, African-American history. And he was sort of joking when he said this, but sort of not. And he said, there's two reasons that we need to, to um, that students need to study African-American history. Number one, so that when you watch movies, you know if they get it right. But number two, and so he, this is the more serious part, is that we make up rules about our society and understand who we are and why we exist today based on our understanding of what history was. And so if we don't teach that and we don't understand that, we don't understand where we are because we don't understand where we've been. And so my point earlier from starting is that most people aren't sitting in African-American history class, right? Some do, not everyone. And so where do they get this history? And that's, to me, why history matters, right? Does that, I mean, I don't know. Like, do artists really just have this free hand and they're not responsible? They can do whatever they want. 
I'm not saying There's the question. Sorry. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It does matter, but I don't think it's their job to worry about it as much as maybe an historian is. I mean, it's our job then to get, you know, for Josh and I who teach history, to get the, wor the word out of what, what it really was, what really happened. Or if it inspires somebody then to look up more information about it and read about it further because they were inspired by that. But their job, you know, there's the old saying in Hollywood, you know, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Like, their job is to make something compelling to watch and, and for a wider audience. And so, and I mean, we could talk on and on about, I, I agree with you on many of the points you said, um, especially about Pearl Harbor. Although, let me just say, the actual 45-minute scene of the attack on Pearl Harbor, like, the movie could have been 45 minutes and not three hours long. That part wasn't bad. Everything else was a train wreck, but that part was not bad. Um, point of reference. Anyway, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that, but ultimately still, if you're a filmmaker, I mean, if a historian wants to make their own movie, then let them go out and make their own movie. I don't think it's, it's, it's the, the filmmaker's responsibility to do that. I think they do that because they want to, but I don't think it's their job to do that. And I would also, and I think TV's doing a much better job now than, than film is doing even. Um, if you want, I mentioned The Untouchables before, but if you want to watch a, a good show about Al Capone, go watch Boardwalk Empire on HBO. That was a great depiction of Al Capone. So, and I think most HBO actual depictions of things are quite historically accurate. But they are, are coming at it from a different perspective and with money from the people who pay to watch HBO every single month. And so they can kind of do what they want. Whereas in Hollywood, it's a, it's a different ball game. So that's what I mean when I say it does matter, but it's ultimately not their job to do it. Can I jump in in yeah. response yeah. to Mary here, <laughs> just with a question for all of us? Um, I'm thinking about whether or not our perceive, uh, like do we perceive that certain films are trying to be accurate? Because I was gonna talk about Abraham Lincoln uh, Vampire Hunter today. And I think that actually is a kind of an interesting book yeah. and film to talk about. It's a good example of intertextuality, uh, of how uh, the idea of vampires and uh, the idea of uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, like how some of those things might intermix and be interesting in conversation with each other. Um, and those may or may not be good uh, conversations, I guess. Uh, but I think when we even hear about such a text, we automatically maybe judge it differently compared to, say, Titanic which maybe we, even though that has some fictional, uh, fictional elements to it, um, there's a sense that it's trying to capture something accurately. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it does. I mean, I, I, um, I think that we kind of have a framing device today when we see something that says subtitled a true story or based upon a true story or inspired by a true story. So we kind of give ourselves poetic license by sort of giving that framing device and uh, there's different layers of truthfulness, let's say, or trueness or factuality. Uh, we have a disclaimer basically. And when we have a movie or a play that doesn't give that disclaimer, like I think Lincoln, let's say Spielberg's Lincoln, I don't think it said a true story based on a true story or inspired by a true story. I think that leaves uh, that could leave us a little bit more kind of befuddled by it. Um, so just wanted to I kind of throw that out. To to come, oh, go no, go okay, to to come to to Mary's defense with this too a bit. <laughs> of, uh, um, you know, I I have to agree with her completely. Uh, I think that when it comes to this question of, you know, y y yes, uh, would I like it that everyone cared a great deal about aspects of history and went off to learn more? Absolutely. Uh, do I think it is a sort of singular duty of an artist to get it right? 
No, I don't, because I think that the artist owes themselves, and I think the artist owes how they perceive their art to be. Uh, I don't think that they have some sense or, or necessity of of civic duty uh, when it comes to how they put their art out there, uh, because you know. I, that 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 comes to me smacks almost as of censorship sort of in a way to me and i'm really not going to sign on to be the one to do that um, i'll do it okay some, some do yeah but i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna get a point in before and, and, and troy jumps other, back my other, oh, no. my other sort of component to that would <laughs> be of no matter how much an artist wants to necessarily get something right historically we also have to disabuse ourselves of the notion that they're gonna you know even if something gets it right it's still not 100% accurate, and it's never going to be. Uh, and there's always going to be something within it that's factually wrong. Uh, you know, so I think that there's that component of it too. So. And I and I think ultimately that's all of our jobs, and that's all of your jobs, right? To get engaged with these texts and to ask those questions, right? It, because ultimately, I think one of the great things Hamilton has done for example, is to get so many people talking about the founding principles of our country and getting people to talk about the choices that the, the creator made in creating this text um, that was incredibly <laughs> engaging from the beginning to the end. Um, and the same thing with Henry V, the same thing with Vanity Fair. These were very wide-reaching texts that so many people see and I think if the artist doesn't have the liberty to do a, to tell a story, which really is what they're doing, um, I think then we lose so much of this this cultural conversation about what those stories mean. If we're only going to look at history as a, a record of data and facts and and make sure that it's all double and triple checked, and uh, so I think it's it's great that we're having these conversations, but that's why we spend so much time here talking about information literacy, that we all have to be more literate in how we ask those questions and where we go to look for the answers, um, like here in the library. Just a little shout out for my friends in the yes. library. Yes. Okay. All right. I have like, again, four yeah. texts up here that I'm like, oh, how do I make this all work together? <laughs> um, so, again, going back to Pinsky, and, and, and someone asked him about the, the truths of the poem. And he said, um, "Yeah, it, it might it might have happened, right? The the guy with the with the woman and letting her off the ledge, um, in the realm of imagination, it's true. Which means in the realm of reality, it has meaning, more meaning I can hope than my true answers on form, more meaning than the facts of my biography, the date, the place, more meaning than the term paper that I'd write about the triangle shirt factory. Um, in other words." Yeah, facts are facts, but but these artists are trying to create sense and feeling, which gives that moment, that event, even more meaning. Um, uh, another poet, Richard Hugo, he writes. This is a book from grad school, um, <laughs> and I still refer to it. But he he writes about what triggers our poems, the subjects, where the topics come from, and so in this case, Pinsky's historical event in the Triangle Shirt Factory. But Richard Hugo, he writes, the poet's relation to the triggering subject should never be as strong as the relationship to his words. The words should not serve the subject. The subject should serve the words. This may be violating facts. For example, if a poem needs to, um, the word black 
at some point, but the grain elevator is yellow, the grain elevator may have to be black in the poem. You owe reality nothing, and the truth about your feelings, everything. So, I mean, this is, this is, that's the difference, I think, between art, creating a text, and the truth or the history. Yeah, yeah. I got more too. You know, this question was being uh, asked about 2,300 years ago. Um, so I just have quotes from Aristotle's Poetics. Ooh. Um, so, so uh, <laughs> how about that? I'm top you. Um, so, uh, so the Poetics, right? He's dealing with an analysis or a critique of of dramatic poetry. And so two excerpts from it, famous ones, are poetry, and in this case, dramatic poetry, is more philosophical and more serious than history. In fact, poetry speaks of universal, whereas history of particulars. And then he goes on, he says, one, meaning the historian, speaks of things which have happened. The other, the poet, speaks of things that might have happened. <laughs> so, you know, so we would probably look at it a little differently today. But uh, putting down what happened is, is nice information, but if we can start deciphering it, if we can start seeing what it means in our universe, and then that allows us poetic license again to, uh, to go another way. If we're writing a piece of art, if we're writing a play or movie or book about history, we're writing it today for a reason. There's something about the world in which we live in today that the artist wants to co wants to comment on, wants to make some kind of con uh, of course wants to make some kind of connections. So the art piece has a purpose. The his the historian has a purpose to lay out history as straightforward. I would say as straightforwardly as they can, depending on their point of view. Mm -hmm. But the historian, their point of view sometimes is masked, sometimes isn't. The, uh, the uh, artist has a point of view <laughs> and they're selecting their pieces for specific reasons. So to agree with my historian friends, an, ar an artist owes, uh, doesn't owe nothing to history, but an artist it wants to say something in the moment and that's why it, that's why it exists. Right, and <laughs> along with what Craig is saying, I think it, getting back yes, again to, to Thackeray when he said that um, there's an interplay here between the documented public events and the often undocumented and unwritten pieces of both private individuals and people who were not on the main stage, right? So the artist is bringing all of those in, um, but isn't doing so recording them necessarily on their iPhone, right? Especially if we're going to go back to Aristotle, right? right? <laughs> so, so they literally are creating in their imagination these other unwritten pieces and bringing those into the conversation that the art is having. Um, but ultimately, I think that is a richer, broader sense of, of the text that they're trying to present than being so concerned about whether this actually was said by an actual person who was actually there, right? Let's just pause for a second. Tish has a microphone. Is there oh. audience questions? We've been, right. we've been rolling. <laughs> We could keep going. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. They could all leave, and I could just <laughs> three more hours. And just that's all I've got. I'm going to be my long-winded. Well, did you guys notice this? At one point, they're saying, "Doesn't matter. We can't constrain the artist. Artists feel." But then Rosen just said, "There's some responsibility somewhere." Like I'm not totally buying it, frankly. I mean, I think there's things we look at and we think this is just wrong. This is hurting the history and damaging our understanding. Um, and so I, I'm not. I'm not with you. Yeah, go ahead, Mary. Okay. 
So, one of my all-time favorite movies is the movie Braveheart from 1995. Most of you were born after that movie came out. I was obsessed with this movie. I was a student at Marine at the time. He painted his face I, blue. It was I awesome. know. They're back in Scotland. I, I am right now. I watched it so often, I could pretty much quote probably still every single line from it. The movie is like pretty much BS from beginning to end. There are so many <laughs> historical inaccuracies in that movie. Um, it's about this Scottish freedom fighter named William Wallace, who's supposed to be this... The movie, Mel Gibson portrays him as this humble man who comes from nothing, who basically takes up this cause of Scottish freedom when his wife is killed by the English, and it's so awful, and he leads this whole this, this uh, rebellion, and he ends up getting captured by the English and dies this horrible traitor's death by being hanged, drawn, and quartered, essentially disemboweled. It's really not a, not a fun death. Um, so there are so many inaccuracies in it, but does it matter? This film ended up starting a wave, a huge cultural wave in Scotland about who they were and where they came from and what it meant, and it started this big tourism drive. I ended up going to Scotland like two years later. I saved up all my little pennies. I had like no money. And I went to Scotland because I was dying because I wanted to see, I wanted to go to where the Battle of Stirling Bridge was, even though in the movie there's no bridge and there's like a, a, a Chevy Suburban at one point that you see in the back, like there's a couple <laughs> anachronisms in it. You know, there's like some problems. You know, even though yeah, there's a little, little, I've seen it enough that I know um, or that William Wallace was, uh, was not just this humble guy. He was a knight who came from a pretty wealthy family. And, and for, so it wasn't these humble upbringings like it's meant to see this, this David and Goliath story. But again, it, it got Scots, it, it forced the Scottish people to start having this conversation about who they were and where they came from. And actually, I think, what, I'm gonna go on a, on a limb here and say I think it was maybe a small drive in getting them to even start questioning Scottish independence again, a topic that had come up multiple times um, in history, even, even around uh, the 1940s and 50s and, and earlier. So I think it kind of gave them a sense of, of, of national identity and a sense of a source of pride. And another movie came out the same year, it was Rob Roy with uh, Liam Neeson, about another, a man in, in the 1715, in 1715 who basically, again, um, it's a different type of a story and it's not as relevant, but it also spurred tourism to go to where Rob Roy lived, to go see Rob Roy's grave. I did go on that tour, by the way, I did go see it. Um, again, does it ultimately matter? But that also inspired me to end up studying abroad in the UK because I loved it so much that I, I wanted to go back and learn more about the history. So that's why I say this idea of do they do a disservice to history, I, I don't necessarily think they do. Um, it's, especially if it, can, if it can have all these positive ramifications for a place like Scotland. There's a question in the back. Hi, everybody. Um, I have my COM 102 class here, and we actually watched an episode or part of an episode of The People versus O.J. Simpson the other day in class. And so one of the things I was going to, you know, wanted to tie into this panel is the idea of Foucault's idea of the effect of truth, which goes right to what Mary is saying. It doesn't matter if William Wallace really was like Mel Gibson with the blue face <laughs> thing, whatever, but that whole line, freedom, and his yeah. horse is rearing, and he's running, that, that image keeps that whole understanding of the idea of revolution alive and so that matters more than if it was historically accurate or not and I mean I started making a list of sitting back here what about all the King Arthur stories I mean those things we have no idea how accurate they are but they survive um, I was thinking about glory and um, the Civil War and why that's such an important piece even though that historically um, Gould, I mean, I think he didn't, 
he didn't really live that same life that kind of shows up in the film, but he becomes this very interesting character. Um, Percy Shelley wrote a poem about Peterloo and the idea of um, coming to the uh, aid of protesters who were killed at a peaceful protest. So I mean, I think this is something that is definitely culturally relevant to us, but understanding, you know, trying to define truth. I mean, isn't history w written by the winners? Are we supposed to say that? Okay, mm -hmm. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> comments? Go ahead. Okay, I'm not totally sure how this fits in, but it's been in my head since then, since Troy invited me to be a part of this panel and kind of comes up with the King Arthur and I, this. And no offense to anybody, but we right. Sorry about this, but we teach a class called Bible is Lit, um, and and some people look at the Bible as truth. And, and yeah, um, but it can also be read as a, a book of stories, literature, up for interpretation. Um, and I found this uh, quotation from David Cross, who's an actor comedian. So again, I don't know how much credibility is there, but um, <laughs> he says, That's back when the Bible was written, then edited, then rewritten, then rewritten, then re-edited, then translated, from dead languages, then retranslated, then edited, then rewritten, then given to kings for them to take their favorite parts, then rewritten, then rewritten, then translated again, then given to the pope for him to approve, then rewritten, then edited again, and then re-re-re-re-rewritten again, all based on stories that were told orally 30 to 90 years after they happened to people who didn't really know how to write. So, <laughs> so I, 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 again, I think it's the whole, I don't know. How does that fit in? No, it does, it does right? It does. Yeah, yeah. Right, it does. Tell us how. How does Tell it fit? Tell us how does it fit in? Because I mean, things get sometimes lost in translation, right? And mm -hmm. I think it goes back to when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's so it's taken as literal truth by many people, but others do look at it as stories. And so I think that's true of many different stories, not just the Bible. Or but history. Well, and, and I, you or know, history. I think or that if book. I think that if one actual person exists in it let's say that Jesus Christ Jesus existed, exists. then everything else becomes part of it yeah. because you're including him in the story and then as you go on and on and on. So I think it fits into it perfectly if we believe at least one person, one person. you know, existed in some context. Um, so I won't give, I'm just gonna hop onto her disclaimer, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, but I think that's how it fits yeah. into it per, um, for me anyway. Hey, thanks for that. No worries. <laughs> We've now shifted to a theological Sorry. conversation. <laughs> I want to bring it back. Um, I mean, I think we're, I think we're kind of. Oh yeah, go ahead. Question? Is there a question? Raise your hand. No, we can't hear you. Oh, it's more of a comment. Yes. Yes, you do. This is so uncomfortable. Are you going to translate the Bible for us? Oh no. I was just going to say, like, even like. Other countries portray like history in different ways, like yes, eat, like they burning of books. Like every country burns their own books just to like keep the history hidden. And even with Columbus, like for the longest time, we said he was a good guy. And even like in junior high and middle school, they still portrayed Columbus oh, as a great guy. We still have a holiday <laughs> for him. I get that. Good. So yeah, that was my comments. Yeah. Uh, as to, to to comment to the issue about. Columbus of y y you're you're incredibly right uh, so you know to what 
Professor Dow was saying earlier, perhaps we shouldn't necessarily be indicting artists uh, who perhaps don't do a good enough job to accurately represent historical reality. But, you know, and if we're saying apologies uh, to, to sort of saying something, uh, I don't have a quote from David Cross, but I'm <laughs> going to go ahead and say that m maybe we should be indicting much of the K through 12 public educational system. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because, uh, you know, the, 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 the question of sort of what is the purpose of history, uh, you know, at many levels differs. Uh, you know, when one is five, one is six, one is seven years old, for the most part one tells a fairly kind story. And then that is reflected as one moves along with the idea that that history must at some level serve the state. Columbus was a profoundly bad guy, uh, you know, to the best of our understanding, saw part of what he was doing uh, from the perspective of hoping to be able to convert people to Catholicism so that he could use them in a new crusade against Islam. Y y yet we uh, have a holiday. <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Wait, wait. Even like nationalistic point of view, like if you think about it, like all the country, like you rather keep things hidden from other countries right. and from your people, so you support your country more. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's that question of should history There's serve the state or should history serve truth. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Right. All right, so like what y'all are saying right now is that like all the history that we learned, uh, like all the history that we learned in class and all that stuff, uh, it's all like like sort of kind of not real in a way? No, yes, sir. No, 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 not at all. Because like of how old <laughs> it is and how old it is and how like far, like long how long ago yeah. that was <laughs> and like how do we know it's actually truthful? I, I don't think we're talking about necessarily history. I think we're talking about the ways in which history is portrayed in oh, okay. film or in, in I got poetry or in theater. I mean, that's what well, I think especially that too, yeah. Well, and I think there's a problem where if one of the things we want is to not make people uncomfortable but a lot of history and the things that matter ab about history are very uncomfortable, difficult things. So we choose to not talk about them, then we leave our public education and we're shocked to learn some of the things that really happened when, we weren't, when they weren't discussed. There's a, there's a great book, uh, it's called Lies My Teacher Told yeah. Me by, by James Lowen. It was written almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and a, a good example of something like this would be someone like Thomas Jefferson. I think most people can admit that the Declaration of Independence is a wonderful document uh, and the idea that, that we all should have some measure of, of liberty and freedom is, is fabulous but yet it's being written by a man who owns people, mm -hmm. right? And so it's that question of how do we account for, for both of those at the same time? And his question is, of course, what do you tell someone who's five years old? You know, that's sort of where that comes from. Question over here. Okay, so, oh God, this is horrible. Okay. Um, <laughs> Catherine, you're great. Thank you. Okay, so another like inaccurate Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot. <laughs> I had it on my list. Yeah, yes. he like, the guy he plays is a super patriotic, like liberal. I love everybody. Like they have a squad of like African American, like poor rich people who are fighting against like the English. But in reality, he was a horrible slave owner who's like not a good guy. So, in history, like when is it okay for filmmakers to portray somebody as like a good person when they were really bad? Is it okay for like? It's like a patriotic movie, obviously. So <laughs> go, Erica. Go. It, I think it's a question of <laughs> we need to also, and this is something that in in graduate school for history they teach you quite a great deal. We need to also take our own understandings of what is good and what is not good for our time, 
and remove them when it comes to how we think about certain people. There is some evidence to suggest, for example, that Abraham Lincoln was not okay with mixed racial marriages. Yet, we pretty much like Abe. Uh, you know, we pretty much like Abe. You know, by our definitions, uh, we would not really be able to say that he was a fully racial egalitarian individual, but he's radical at some level for his time. Uh, you know, so I think it's just a question in some way of, of that, of being able to take our own understandings uh, and, and not put them upon someone, not expect someone historically to, to think and act a certain way. And yeah, that's a terribly inaccurate movie. And that's the problem. Um, thank you for this wonderful speech. Um, I agree and I disagree. <laughs> I'm all about monitoring films and novels and poetry and inaccuracy in arts um, should be monitored, especially in our future um, generations. And one, one question I have, would this inaccuracy um, encourage people to search and uh, strike interest in history? Would it make like Professor Fulfills go and uh, you know um, go abroad and learn about history? Can mm -hmm. I can I add that? I I think there's two kind of portions to what you said in my head. One is I think the artist should be free to express what he or she wants, how, when, where, but it's also up to society, whether it's fact checkers, librarians, citizens, to then, it, quote unquote, call them out on it. Right. So I think that they need to have the freedom to speak, but we need the freedom to reply. Yep. And that's how art and society and freedom, for me anyway, exists. So I think that would be my reply to that. Yeah, and I was just going to throw something into what Josh said about um, looking at Lincoln in that way. We're just, we were just talking about this in my class the other day when we were talking about one of the beloved characters of American fiction, Atticus Finch, right, who seems like this bigger-than-life hero. And I was asking my class if they really think that he was all that racially progressive or if he just believed in justice and if he just believed in the law. And that those aren't necessarily the same thing. Um, and we were talking about the sequel, Go Set a Watchman, in which Scout is very disappointed in that her dad is, she kind of, the, the curtain is pulled back and it's revealed that he is a man of his time, like Josh was saying. He, he is progressive for the 1930s, <laughs> but he's not as progressive as we in 2017 would want him to be. And we have to be careful with just to, to let people exist in their own times. Um, it doesn't mean we have to love what they're doing, but we have to keep in mind that we live in a different time in a different place. That's Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Oh, sorry. I think yeah. you also could look at, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go question? Ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Jump on. Yes, uh, my question was, can't film be used as propaganda? Like, we were talking about the movie Hidden Fingers, and in that movie, there were a lot of inaccuracies. And my question was, like, for, like, military propaganda, you take a film like American Sniper by Clint Eastwood, who portrayed Chris Kyle, couldn't that be used as propaganda, depending on how you view the movie? Yeah, great question. It, I mean, I think an interesting point, and then I'll let you guys comment, is how many uh, movies that involve the military, um, our government supplies them with 
tanks and helicopters because it does shed the military in good light, which maybe that's okay. I, I mean, that's I think that's an interesting um, discussion to have. So. Before Have at it, guys. I think uh, propaganda is another end of the spectrum, right? So. Before Craig hops in, I just wanted to <laughs> mention one example of actually uh, uh, of what you're talking about. Uh, as I was thinking about Titanic and the 1997 film that creates a fictional story within the backdrop of you know historical um, happenings, uh, I discovered that there was another film called Titanic from 1943 that was essentially a German propaganda film uh, where they created a fictitious uh, main character who was a German first officer as the hero, and the British capitalists were the villains. And so certainly, uh, we, films can be created in that way and used in that way, and so, um, so it is something that we have to think about. I'm going to just real quick, and I know you wanted to talk about sure, uh, sure. Triumph, of, uh, Triumph of the Will, right? Sure. sure. But mm, I would probably argue that almost, almost, uh, I'm not even going to hedge this time, <laughs> that, that, that movies or plays or television dramas based in history are propaganda. P I want to say period, but period, there's a reason these things are told, and it's to convince somebody of some point of view. We kept talking about uh, period and those kind of things, but it's context. And I think it's, it's looking at context of when a piece of art is set, when it's, when it's written, and when it's being produced. Like Shakespeare's history plays, written in 1600, set earlier, produced today. So why would we produce this play? Well, it might be to keep the beauty al alive, but there's, but there's there's some sort of political message or some way of saying, let's reassess history. I mean, um, why go, you know, if there are 20 films made about the same topic, I'm just gonna get off history and say, if we're, well, the Bible. If there are 20 films or plays about the same topic, why am I gonna see one? It's about how the story is told more than the end. I know if I see a movie about Noah's Ark, there's gonna be rain and there's gonna be animals, I would think. So why do I wanna see it if I know the ending and I've seen one before? Because it's being told in a certain way for a certain reason to convince us of something else. So hence my passion and go ahead. But both artists and governments will use uh, these mediums to be incredibly propagandistic. Uh, you know, probably the, the two quickest examples that come to mind for me, of course, are the, the films uh, made by, by Riefenstahl in the 1930s uh, in service of uh, the Nazi state. Uh, the best example of this would be uh, Triumph of the Will, which was a film shot to commemorate the Nazi uh, Party Congress meeting, I believe, in 1934 uh, in and around the city of, of Nuremberg. Uh, and, you know, it's about an hour and a half long. You know, people can, can view it uh, on YouTube and things like that now. Uh, and it, it portrays, of course, the, the ideals of the German state. Uh, they make another film uh, with the Olympics in 1936, the same thing, trying to sort of create this sort of ideal masculine Aryan. Uh, the other example that I uh, sort of have off the top of my head um, is, is one in the service of a certain type of science, uh, and the film was called The Black Stork, uh, and it was made in the 19-teens. It was a silent film. Uh, if you've never heard of the concept of eugenics, uh, eugenics, of course, was a, a, a sort of science, or sort of pseudoscience, we would say, uh, that tended 
to place a sort of pecking order uh, on certain races uh, and also say that certain behaviors uh, are hereditary. So things like sterilization and, and this type of idea was something that, that eugenics would, would, would perpetuate uh, and the Nazis eventually sort of build off of this. Mm -hmm. uh, and The Black Stork was a film that basically you know, s told the story of a couple and the idea was that the man uh, you know, did some things that he shouldn't, the, the wife did some things that they shouldn't and they agreed to sterilize themselves, if I recall the film correctly, uh, because the assumption being, well, they didn't want their bad behaviors to be sort of perpetuated by their children uh, and they wanted to sort of serve society that way. Mm -hmm. So those would be sort of examples of propaganda. Yeah. So to piggyback off of, of what Josh was saying, um, I would also, I had it written down originally of looking at the way that Native Americans were portrayed in cinema. And I think in a way that did kind of serve as a bit of, of propaganda for how it was always, you know, cowboy good, Native American bad, right? It was Indians, Indians bad, cowboy good. And you watch movies, um, there's, a, there's a film from 1941 with Errol Flynn called They Died With Their Boots On and he plays George Armstrong Custer about the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876. And I always show clips of it to my students because you see this scene where it's the last scene where Custer and his men in the 7th Cavalry are portrayed in this way like they are the good virtuous men trying to fight against these bad Native Americans and even the music, like when they show the Native Americans, it's like dun, 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 like this like evil music and when they show Custer and his men, it's like this positive like rousing music. So you're made to feel like they're bad and he's good. But when you know the reality of it, that the reason why the 7th Cavalry was dispatched in that area to begin with was because According to a treaty from years ago, there was supposed to be no white settlement in the Black Hills, and then in 1874, gold was discovered. Yep. So suddenly they all start going in there. Well, then what happens? White settlers go in, the Native Americans attack them, and then the army has to go in to protect them. So for, for decades, you saw movies where like, you'd have either white people, like some guy named like, you know, Jim Smith or, or Donna Reed playing Sacagawea in this movie about <laughs> Lewis and Clark, and she's got like orange like, paint on her face. She's got these blue, blue eyes and this really distinctive, she looks like an Oompa Loompa, and she's playing Sacagawea, and you're like, oh my, is there nobody who's Native American who could play this role? And then we get to the 1990s, and now there's kind of this, this sort of revisionist history going on where we're now... We're now recognizing, and not even necessarily revisionist, but just recognizing that there are other people out there. And you've got Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner, which is a fictional film, um, but it portrays Native Americans very humanely. Um, and it, I remember being a film that, again, I watched again and again. And then one of my all-time favorites is 1992's Last of the Mohicans. Now, that's based on a James Fenimore Cooper novel, and I can, I can defer to my colleagues on that one. But in terms of the history, that has so many inaccuracies in it, where it, we go from you know, white guy good, Indian guy bad, and then it almost kind of reverses itself where all the white people are stupid except for the few Native Americans in the movie. And so we kind of go from one, one extreme to the other. At the same time, I loved the movie. <laughs> You're watching wow. Daniel Lewis, you know, run up this, this cliff straight up with his long hair flowing in the wind and he's going after his woman and it's great. Even though the main part of the story with the massacre at Fort William never happened at all the way in which it's portrayed, but that's okay, Tish. right? It's, yeah, you got a question? And I, I think as Tish is going in, I think to go back to, the, you know, why does it matter today as we're having debates about the Dakota Access Pipeline, oh which God, in two right. weeks we have a discussion in the library about, mm. where Native Americans are saying you can't run a water line across our lands. Like, our understanding of history matters and how they got there and what their rights are and how our country exists. So, okay, question. So, why the lawmakers not doing anything about it? Why is the government allowing the filmmakers to lie. That's right. Yeah, so good. That's a good, uh, maybe that's the elephant in the room. Why do we allow the filmmakers to do this? 
Yeah, jump. Yes. Uh, are they doing anything about it? I think a lot of the funding for the arts is being taken away. So <laughs> maybe they're trying to inhibit some of the storytelling that that goes out there. And, and I mean, and our we have freedom of speech. So when so I mean that's one of the that's one of the foundations of our democracy. So the government doing something about it, they can create their own pro uh, propaganda or they can defund the arts. What? No, no, no. I just yeah. Oh, but so, you know, so it depends what you mean by doing something about it. And who knows what the current government will do about it in the not so near future, not so distant right. future, I would think. Okay, I'm so sorry, but I totally want to pick, I'm sorry, I'm coming in again, but that you just reminded me of something else we also talk about. Um, um, so do you remember, you guys remember a few years ago, there was this movie, like, I wouldn't even call it a movie, it was this really bad movie. Um, made portraying the Prophet Muhammad that was shown on YouTube, right? And it caused this big stir all throughout the world. And, and you had people rioting in different countries and, and, and even European countries asking the United States government, why don't you take that film down from YouTube? It was this, it, the movie was terrible. And the US government response was, we don't do that. Now in Europe, they will censor things that are considered to be if they're anti-Semitic or if they're if offensive in a different way or denying the Holocaust, that's against the law. But here, we look at as our government is not supposed to be engaging in censorship of the arts. Um, so whether there's maybe a censorship that exists like from a societal perspective or a self-censorship is maybe a different story, but the government is not, they're not gonna tell you that you can't make that movie or they, I mean, that would be a complete violation of the First Amendment. And I, I think we're getting to a, a good point. I mean, I, and I think that just to emphasize, you know, I was joking earlier about me wanting to be like the censor over it. I mean, I think the way that we deal with inaccuracy is that we talk about it in a civil society like the discourse what we do here sharing ideas better ideas trump the bad ideas and that's what we hope that our higher education system still stands for and that education in general and that people who have um, gone through our system recognize that that the way to stop bad speech is with more good speech mm -hmm. better speech so i want to thank everyone for coming how about a round of applause for our panel members Erica really wants to say it's, something. This is all about you. I think there's, again, you've got another event coming up, and I think there's a lot of overlap regarding our fake news, fake news discussion. Right. Um, and when right. is that? April? You can do a little yes. commercial for it. Yeah, April 6th, we have a discussion on fake news and another one. So thank you all for coming. Be good consumers of art. Thank you. And, uh,